Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It is a This Month in Birding episode it's the end of the month, so I'll keep things brief up top like I do. But I do want to announce that I will once again be venturing into the wild world of in-person birding festivals this spring, COVID permitting, of course. I am scheduled to speak at the Kansas Lectrex Prairie Chicken Festival from April 7th to the 10th, 2022. Going to see some prairie chickens, including lesser prairie chicken in Hayes, Kansas in April. Uh, you might remember way back pre-pandemic that I was scheduled for two years to speak at a similar prairie chicken festival in Oklahoma that was postponed and then postponed a second time. And in the intervening years, the lesser prairie chickens went away. Uh, maybe to other leks, maybe they just disappeared, but they were not in the places where they could be easily accessed and thus the festival's reason for existing also disappeared. So we moved north to a new state with a new group of people, but the same keynote speaker, that being me, to see the birds and talk about why birding is great and why it makes you a better person. Um, the link to the festival will be in the show notes if you're in the area or you are interested. It'll be fun. Come on out. Say hello. I'm looking forward to seeing people again. It's going to be great. On with the show, I welcome friends Miko Jimenez, Greg Nice, and Joanna Wu for this month in birding. We talk about Colombian research. We talk about putting transmitters on birds, and we talk about uh, weird things we've seen gulls do. That is right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of January 2022. The list of continuing ABA area rarities in January is much longer and more impressive than any new birds we've encountered so far this year. The main stellar sea eagle, for instance, is still being seen, as is the bat falcon and the social flycatcher in South Texas, and the blue mockingbird in New Mexico. And for those birders who remember, there is still an Inca tern in Hawaii, though it is the second bird and the second ABA area record, not the first one. But even in a slow month, I do have a state first to report here from Colorado, where a rufus-backed robin in Montezuma County is a first and the farthest north record of this West Mexican species, though not by quite as much as you'd think. There's a 2004 record from southern Utah and two more recent records from earlier this month even in Nevada. In the last couple decades, this species has become regular in Arizona with dozens of records even spilling over into New Mexico and southern California. The robin is part of a recent run of North Mexican species to turn up in southern Colorado in recent years. It's a who's who, including yellow grosbeak, golden crowned warbler, and ruddy ground dove, among others. That is all I have for you this week. If you want the entire roundup, check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays. That's at aba.org slash rba, or get those rarities as soon as they happen. You can check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Facebook. It is the last week of the month. Time again for this month in birding, the very first of 2022, and the very first touched by the long, annoying finger of coronavirus 
One of our panelists, Brooke Bateman, was scheduled to be with us, but unfortunately came down with COVID. I hope her bout is light and she is resting and will be back on her feet soon. But we persevere to talk about birds in these turbulent times because that is all we really know to do. Um, I am joined by a great panel here. Um, I'm going to go in reverse alphabetical order this time. We'll do something different for 2022. So first up, an ornithologist currently at UCLA looking at overlooked female birds, both as a study interest and as one of the galbatrosses, is Joanna Wu. Welcome back, Joanna. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And uh, next up, sliding in is a last-minute replacement, for which I'm very grateful. It is my colleague here at the ABA, uh, Greg Neese. Hey, Greg. Long time no see. Long time no see. It's been about 10 minutes. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and third, an aeroecologist in training at Colorado State University, which means to the lay birder, uh, basically a bird radar person. Uh, maybe if I got that right. Uh, it's, it's Miko Jimenez. Hi, Miko. Hey, thanks for having me, Nate. And yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I don't, not that I mean to like uh, dismiss your, your, the work that you're doing into like uh, three words, but uh, <laughs> hey, who doesn't love bird radar stuff? So yeah. <laughs> um, I hope that the new year is going as well as possible for all the three of you. Um, what, was, what was your first bird of 2022? So I think mine was a black cap chickadee. It was just at the theater, like when I woke up. It was, yeah. you know. But it had snowed the night before, so it was kind of nice. It was like knocking all the, the snow off the tree, and it was, know, it was a nice thing to see to start the year off. Classic. Nice. Well, I'm in, I'm in inner city Chicago. Um, well, in the city in Chicago, and it's always House Sparrow. <laughs> always. <I> just, <laughs> always, always. But uh, uh, I, did, I did last weekend uh, get to show my wife her lifer saw wet owl, which was a heck of a lot of fun. Oh, cool. In the city? Uh, just, just north. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, cool. That's a sweet bird in a cemetery. Yeah. Of course. They like cemeteries always. Mm-hmm. And I, I am not hundred percent sure, but the three most common ones that I see every day are, um, Allen's hummingbird, um, which are really common here in Southern California which, and Northern mockingbird. And we have a ton of butter butts right now. <laughs> oh yeah. This is the season. <laughs> yep. My very first bird of 2022 was um, American Goldfinch, which was the first time that's ever been my first bird. Um, just came down the stairs in the morning and got a, got a cup of coffee and looked out the back window and there was a, a small flock of them in my neighbor's Bradford pears, which I'm not thrilled about those Bradford pears, but uh, I, do like the, I do like the American Goldfinches in there. That's a special one. Yeah, it's the first year it hasn't been like... Uh, like a house finch in, in like four or five years. Mm-hmm. I just looked out the back window instead of the front window. That's where all the house finches are. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you what I haven't seen that I want to see. Uh, Vesper Sparrow is a, a real nemesis for me in my county. And uh, the last several times I've been to this one spot in the northeast corner, I've not seen it. And I seem to be the only person in my county that has not seen it because I get eBirds county needs alerts. Um, for that species, like literally every single, every, every single day, it's mm-hmm. really annoying, which I'm going to use as a segue to talk about another bird that people are not saying, uh, which is the ivory-billed woodpecker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you sure Profes- they're not prof- seeing it? Though? Professional segue. Um, wop, wop. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, that uh, just moves on to the first topic we can talk about. It was declared uh, extinct by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service last fall. Um, because there had not been any confirmed sightings in, in many, many, many decades. And as with all proposed changes that the federal government makes, there was a public comment period. Uh, 
Well, now in January, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been encouraged, and I think I'm using that term pretty loosely and in quotes, to reopen the discussion with a public hearing that is to be held on the 26th of January, which is the day after this podcast goes live. Um, and I find that it really has driven me up the wall because um, inspired by this hearing, I've got, kind of gotten into the the discourse, the ivory build discourse more than I have in uh, many years to see what sort of the justification for this this decision is. And it is it's the same old crap. Um, nothing new, uh, though I have been promised back channel that there is something new, but I frankly don't really believe it. Uh, anyway, what, what bugs me is that there are like all these extinction crises happening right now in Hawaii, for instance. And it just feels like this is such a waste of time and energy. Maybe by the time this podcast drops, I will have to eat my words. But um, I really don't think I really don't. Think I, I highly will. doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I imagine that none of you maybe are as uh, into the drama as I am. Uh, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts. I, I just think that the whole thing is really wild. Where does the discourse like? take like is this on like facebook or like social There's media a facebook okay, group yeah. because of course there is yeah of course yeah. um <laughs> i don't know i just kind of dropped in just to see what was going on and just kind of like all right, all right it's the same they're just discussing the same old videos from yeah a decade yeah, yeah. ago um at increasing levels of zoom and uh saturation and various you know you know you, you can only zoom in a digital video so much <laughs> before you just lose whatever you can get out of it I wanted to see what was up because that's where the discussion was about this new hearing. And um, I don't know. It just, it, it probably gets me, it shouldn't, but it does. Uh, but I will say after, you know, a long time kind of arguing about uh, climate change and just political drama and all that stuff, it is sort of nice to argue about something that has these very <laughs> low stakes. <laughs> you, you may not have anything to discuss about this. Maybe this is just me venting, me ranting right off the top. So, well, I just, you know, I don't know how a species that big in, in an, in an area like the Southeast United States with that many people looking for it. Yeah. And, and there's just an absolute lack of any kind of evidence. Uh, there just is. Yeah. They can, they can go to mountains. I say they, I mean, ornithologists, birders mm -hmm. can go to mountains in Colombia and Africa and Asia and find tiny, tiny little uh, you know, really isolated species that haven't been seen since the early 1900s. And they can rediscover them, mm -hmm. but they can't rediscover a woodpecker the size of a red-tailed hawk that <laughs> is right in their backyard. So it, it's is, like <laughs> it is weird. Um, yeah, and it's just so much energy that could be put on other things that I think are more important. And that, I think that's yeah. what bugs me most about this fish and wild, getting the fish and wildlife service involved. Like, I'm totally cool, like, letting people have their hobbies. Like, if your hobby is looking at these pixels and trying to make something out of it. Have fun. Like, honestly, I don't... But getting the Fish and Wildlife Service and changing the official distinction of it just feels like uh, yeah, just a misplacement of resources and energy. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the believers are kind of drifting off into QAnon territory. It's, it's like Birder QAnon, yeah. <laughs> That's, I, I'm with you, Nate. I am really curious what the Fish and Wildlife Service's justification is for opening this again. I haven't yeah. even bothered to follow the story, honestly, because I don't think it's a good use of energy. <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, people, I guess people are really attached to those pixelated possibilities yeah. and i get it like it's an amazing idea. bird and like yeah. if i'm wrong i'm wrong like prove me wrong i'll i'll eat my words and i'll do it happily um uh, but uh it's uh it's a mess it's a bit of a mess <laughs> yeah i mean 
I don't want to, I guess I'm just kind of in the same boat. And like, the reason I asked like where the discourse takes place is because I feel like in all of my circles, we're kind of on the same page about it. But I mean, you know how echo chambers work, but right. Yeah. I mean, I just, again, I don't want to pile things on. I just kind of agree with everything that's been said there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you want to rant about it, feel free to take, though I've kind of sucked in all the oxygen for (laughs) ranting in this issue. I I apologize for it. Um, You know, people have asked about it and I like, it's, it's weird. And maybe I'll check in on this fish and wildlife thing uh, on the 26th, which is, and report back, you know, on a future podcast episode. I don't know, but um, I just don't think there's much coming out. And if there were, then it wouldn't be kind of secretive and, and going, you know. Wait, do they have do they have like a promised date of some sort of release or like information release or it's something? It's the same stuff. It's like, oh, okay. There are these videos kicking around in the background that no one has seen, and they're amazing, right? Into the point where people see them, and then you realize that it's nothing. <laughs> it's, and, it's a wood uh, duck. <laughs> yeah, it's a wood. Yeah, or a belted kingfisher, or a pileated woodpecker, or anything else that sort of is large and flying in those places, and yeah. It's it's wild, and I won't give it any more. I just w- wanted the opportunity to maybe rant a little bit and acknowledge that the people who are online who asked about it, um, yeah, that that's what I think. <laughs> so let's shall we move on to other <laughs> issues, perhaps? <laughs> I was super excited when my colleagues shared this story this week. Um, It is basically a resurvey project, something that Frank Chapman, which is who's a famous ornithologist in early 1900s, um, surveyed Columbia, one of the most biodiverse spots um, for birds and other biodiversity in, I believe, 1911 to 1915. And he was associated with American Museum of Natural History doing one of those, you know, massive museum collection documenting trips, um, which is really great scientifically, but an, an issue that it has is being really colonial in nature, like parachuting in t- and saying, hey, I'm like the authority, I'm going to take stock on your biodiversity <laughs> and report back and bring it back to my country, et cetera. So th- that's, those are, are some of the issues that we're realizing is wrong with um, with those types of historic surveys, even though they have great scientific value, to be sure. Um, so in in doing so, he did rely on a lot of local guides, but they were not credited or, yeah. or only referred to in pejorative terms when, when he wrote up his surveys. And so this really exciting resurvey project started in 2019, and it's led by local Colombian researchers um, like Andres Cuervo at the National University of Colombia in Bogota and a a number of others as well who are basically doing this resurvey and and leading it themselves. Um, And to be sure, we've got folks from from the U.S. and other countries, prominent scientists, American Museum of Natural History is involved in aiding it. But I think what's really neat is it's local um, led and it is a really exciting example of a way to do science and collaborations right in an anti-racist way. I'm excited to see what this project will find. One of the things they're already finding is that um, specialist species are being replaced by generalists. Large frugivores, for example, are threatened because they need, you know, intact, expansive forests. So a little bit unfortunate, but not surprising. Yeah, I just hope this will be a model of 
of the type of work we can do moving forward. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I actually have a friend who's working on this project and was quoted in this article. And I was really excited to see her, uh, Natalia Ocampo, who did um, her work in in North Carolina at Duke. And so I Mm -hmm. kind of ran around with her and her husband. Uh, They were kind of in our local bird crew Mm -hmm. um, that would go birding all over the state and stuff. And and it's neat to see her doing this work. Just in addition to the fact that, you know, doing the exact same survey in the exact same place a hundred years later or more than a hundred years later is going to be so useful just to like see the changes that have happened. Columbia is still this country where they're, they're still finding like brand new birds there totally. regularly and, and there's still so yeah. much to discover. And Columbia just has this really strong bird academic ornithologist culture as well. And it's just really neat to see them show what they can do and, you know, repeating this, repeating this landmark study. I mean, that it's kind of an argument for explanatory science, right? There's, yeah, there's sure. some parties out there who kind of frown upon just kind of going out there and documenting things as a naturalist. Yeah, old school natural history. Totally. Yeah. And um, there's some people that like think that's a waste of resources or a waste of, you know, but they, things could be done more efficiently, uh, like study-based designs. Um, but I mean, this project can't doesn't exist, you know, if, if someone doesn't go out there and document those mm-hmm. things for the first time. Um, and so it, it's, it'll be really cool to see. And it's cool that they're already seeing some of those changes to community assemblage and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I started doing conservation work in the Peruvian Amazon in, in the early 90s, late 80s. And back then I was doing yeah, mostly reforestation as focused on frogs as much or actually more than birds at the time. There was nobody locally birding. There were no bird guides. Mm-hmm. There was nothing. And then a couple of years later in Costa Rica, uh, like 91 or 92, the first time I went, same thing. There were no birders, local birders. There were no bird guides. And I've just watched this explode. And the Latin American birders and the Latin American guides and the researchers are so good. And it's a, it's a really recent phenomenon. Yeah, you know, it just shows you, you know, give give folks the resources and let them let them loose. And it, there's going to be a lot of cool stuff that's going to be coming out of it. And um, I like you, Joanna, I'm really stoked to see uh, where this goes and what happens because of it. I'm sure Elias, most of these studies, it's like the jumping off point for, you know, dozens upon dozens of, of cool research that is, mm-hmm. can be done in Colombia um, in the future, too. Just got to lay that groundwork and boy, it, it blows up. Yeah, totally. And I hope it can be a model of mm-hmm. maybe how we can do things in America, learning from the indigenous and mm-hmm. traditional local folks who have a lot of knowledge, just not catalog sure. in the Western science framework that we can easily find. Yeah, I'm thinking in particular of that, um, the California condor, you know, bringing the California oh, yeah. condor back to the those to historic lands in the Pacific Northwest. Which- True. Yep. Yep. Yeah, one thing that the article mentioned that I thought was really interesting you know, in addition to the fact that in engaging with local communities because they have this inherent knowledge um, or, you know, this like kind of intimate knowledge of local wildlife. Uh, one thing that the article talked about that I thought was interesting was just the importance of that given the political uh, landscape in Colombia, right? So like yeah. there's a chance that some of these areas might not be accessible to other, like out international researchers at some point. Mm-hmm. So developing those relationships and developing kind of the skill sets to survey for these species is like it's important just because they might not be accessible in the, in the near future yeah. yeah yeah for sure i i have a soft spot 
for Colombia as most birders do. I've had the good fortune to go down there and bird a couple of times and it's just amazing. I mean, just it's, I can't say enough about it. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the people down there are, are fantastic and they just care so much about their biodiversity down there. And it's just so exciting to, to see more and more people, you know, finding ways to have meaningful relationships with, with all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Just a side note. Did you know that Frank Chapman came up with the idea for the Christmas bird count? Did he? Apparently. Oh, oh, that's, that's, what right. Wiki, that's what Wikipedia says. I didn't, I didn't realize that was the same Frank Chapman, but now that you make that connection, it's totally obvious. Yeah, he was with the American Museum of Natural History, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. I didn't make that right. connection. I mean, I guess, yeah, until Wikipedia did for me. So, like, I've started to think of migration science as kind of this, like, large jigsaw puzzle. You know, all these researchers are working on their little section and trying to connect the pieces. And then every so often, a study comes out that kind of frames a lot of the work that we're doing. And I think two such studies came out this past month. So one focuses on birds as seed dispersers. About half of all plant species in the world rely on animals as, to disperse their seeds. And birds obviously play a big role in that because a lot of birds eat seeds and then migrate long distances. So as we lose birds and mammals that, uh, that disperse seeds, you know, how will that affect plant species that particularly in a world with a cl- changing climate? So using a public database of about 18,000 plant-animal interactions, a team of scientists at the University of Maryland were able to build a trait-based model that basically was able to predict species interactions. And essentially what they found was that the loss of birds and mammals to date has reduced the ability for plants to adapt to a changing climate by upwards of 60%. And here's the kicker, uh, a lot of the remaining seed dispersers are actually threatened or endangered. So kind of a huge bummer on that front. Uh, (laughs) Meanwhile, a different group of folks led by the Migratory Connectivity Project tracked three different species of Jaegers from the breeding grounds uh, in, their, in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, like most birds, we don't really know where seabirds go. They're a little mysterious in that way. But um, based on I the current them. literature, when they put the trackers on, they assumed a lot of these birds would go south into the Atlantic for the winter with some variability in habitat choices. Um, instead, the birds traveled, the three different species went to a total of four different oceans with long-tailed Jaegers going all the way to the Indian Ocean parasitic Jaegers bopping around the Atlantic, uh, Pomeran Jaegers uh, going all the way west into the Pacific Ocean. Um, so I know Jaegers aren't seed dispersers, uh, so this is an exact one-to-one here. They're seed dispersers. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Oh. <laughs> Boom! Uh, Can't save those for the end, really. <laughs> nope. nope. <laughs> but I just wanted to talk about these two studies together because I think they highlight two kind of important points about migration science. One is that it's becoming increasingly clear that birds are a major player in kind of global, global ecological processes. And then two, we are constantly, and I mean constantly, having like our preconceived notions about where birds go turned on their heads. Mm-hmm. So we know b- migration is important, and we also know so little about it. It's what makes migration so fascinating. It's also so incredibly frustrating as a migration scientist. Uh, and I just thought these two studies really summed that up well, and they came out in the same month. month, month. <laughs> Sorry. Nice job, Miko, tying those two things together. And I would say that even though Jaegers are not seed dispersers, they are energy dispersers because all that energy from the lemmings and whatnot that they eat in the Arctic during the breeding season gets carried around to the oceans. And I I think people have talked about that in terms of like really large ocean mammals like whales and stuff in terms of how they are eating enormous amounts of you know, invertebrates and then carrying that essentially and, and like pooping all the way up the, <laughs> all the way up the coast <laughs> into the Atlantic where they are down to the Pacific when they're like dispersing this energy uh, around the oceans. And I, I have to think that these Jaegers are doing something similar 
So even though they're not, you know, specifically dispersing seeds, they are dispersing something around. And uh, I, I, I just love um, studies that put trackers on migratory birds and yeah. <laughs> see where they end up going. No, absolutely. Um, that long-tailed Jaeger, that long-tailed Jaeger into the Indian Ocean by Madagascar is absolutely <laughs> wild, right? Where, where did that, yeah. where did that Jaeger start up? Start uh, none of it. None of it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To Madagascar. I, I yeah. just, I just love how, how every time another study like this is done, um, more hardware is put on more birds and more birds are tracked. It just turns our understanding of what these birds are doing on its head upside mm-hmm. down almost every time. And it's, it's really wonderful um, just to, to really see in real time how uh, we don't really have a concept yet of what it is to be a bird. To, we, mm. we judge things by our own ability to walk and run and space and time. Uh, you know, birds don't, space and time are different for them. Oh, I mean, for sure. we, yeah. can't, we can't comprehend what it's like for a white pelican to get up in the air under its own power around Chicago and be in Minneapolis by nightfall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we yeah. can't comprehend it. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Miko, when I was listening to you talk about these two, I was struck both by how big the world is. The fact yeah. that, you know, I have seen like two seabird species because I'm terrible at seabirding and because the, <laughs> The ocean is 70% of the yeah. earth and they're just there's just so much surface you can't get to from the coasts. Uh, and also how small the world is, how it's so connected and the seed dispersal roles that have evolutionarily evolved over time have, are now being impacted by the loss of large seed dispersers. Just, um, you know, those influences have, have rippled and have real significance for how plants can adapt to climate change mm-hmm. and anthropogenic change. I, I think all that's so fascinating and it it is so neat how large-scale studies like this um, happen. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm with you on multiple fronts. One, I grew up in the Midwest, so seabirds were relatively new to me when I moved out to the East Coast. Now I'm back in Colorado. Unimportant. But yeah, like <laughs> seabirds have just been this mystery to me for a long time. Um, and I think they are for a lot of people. Um, you know, they're not necessarily like the most uh, apparent birds that you see all the time, obviously, just based on where they are. Um, And yeah, I mean, one thing, you know, that relationship between kind of like uh, species and the plant or bird species and the plants that they disperse the seeds of is one thing that the paper pointed out that I thought was interesting is just like these, a lot of the species that we're losing are these specialists. And this is a callback to what you talked about earlier, Joanna of these, these specialists that have kind of co-evolved together, these birds and these plants or these mammals and these plants. And that's, that's mm-hmm. a lot of what we're losing and they're being replaced by these generalists that don't necessarily fill that same niche of mm-hmm. seed dispersal. It's a big loss when we lose those specialist species. I think we've certainly seen it even in North America with extinctions. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of like the passenger pigeon, right? Totally. And you know, we, the, the loss of that bird and how closely that bird was tied to is like American chestnut. And mm-hmm. um, beach was it beach or is it chestnut? I get those beach. two mixed up. Beach, that's right. Chestnut was the blight. Another <laughs> another loss, but for a different reason. There was but- there was one there was one nesting colony of uh, pigeons in Michigan that went all the way from Berrien County, which is like by the border with Indiana, mm-hmm. all the way up almost to Traverse City. Their nesting well, colonies like were just unbelievable. Michigan, yeah, and you know the loss of the loss of that bird meant the loss of 
lots of beech trees. I mean, we still see beech trees around, but they're not nearly as prevalent as they used to be, and they don't produce the mast that they used to do, at least in tonnage. Um, yeah, I mean, that's you know maybe the maybe an oversimplification of the sort of thing you're talking about, Miko, but it's maybe a, a sort of an illustration of what we're what we're losing, perhaps. Definitely, yeah. And uh, just in terms of seabirds, because I can talk about seabirds like all day long. Um, but you, Joanna, you mentioned that, you know, it's pretty wild that you don't really get to see them, uh, from shore all that often. And it is amazing. It is amazing to me every time that I go out on a boat and look for seabirds that the fact that we see anything at all, I know because the ocean is so big right. and that boat is so small. I mean, just think about how many birds must be out there that you don't see that are just beyond, beyond the curvature of the earth. And, um, which really isn't all that far, uh, when you're out there and that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. You, you're, we're just lucky that the boat intersects with some with some birds, and then you have a good day. It's it's crazy. It's it's so there's so many there's so much space out there. It's so vast. I mean, to that end, one thing that this paper noted also is like a lot of these species that they tracked have been known to breed in other places that the individual birds that they tracked didn't go. So, in, in mm-hmm. other words, there's still so much we don't know. There's still definitely birds that are taking other pathways to get to their uh, to their wintering ground. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, and I I was also struck by this map, um, with the Jaegers, um, how much time they spend in like the North Atlantic in the middle of nowhere, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Southeast of Greenland. Um, there's just like this big cluster of movements up there. And there was a study that came out, uh, I want to say like less than six months ago. I don't know exactly that basically put trackers on a bunch of different seabirds and found out where they were going. And a bunch of them like congregated in this random spot in the middle of the North Atlantic in that same area. So something's going on there and a lot of birds are going there, but we don't really know why or how many or all that stuff. It's just this giant mystery, this, this black box that is the lives of so many of these birds. Yeah, I, if, I understand, if I remember correctly, um, uh, that, that area is also the, the wintering grounds for Rosses and ivory gulls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think some alcids too. Like there's, there's something yeah. really special going on right there. Um, it's like right where the Gulf Stream meets the, the Greenland. So like... Um, you know, where the, where the water temperatures rub up against each other. Like there's some dynamic activity that happens with the, mm. with the water and the currents and the, the birds are all over there. So it's seabird music festival or something. Yeah. yeah. There needs to be one, just like a, like a bunch of barges out there. <laughs> yeah. in the middle yeah, of exactly. <laughs> so someone get on that. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we are we are having another in the ABA area. We're having another good year for snowy owls mm-hmm. there pretty much everywhere, um, at least east of the Rockies. I haven't been following it too much west of the Rockies. And, uh, you know, places I saw there was one in Kitty Hawk uh, today. There's one that's been on the National Mall getting a lot of attention. Um, I actually saw one of the ones on the Outer Banks when I was out there. Oh, that's right. Month, I saw that. But I had to I keep that. it quiet. Like, I had to be a suppressor about it, and I felt really bad about that. Yeah, there's all, yeah, there's all the associated right. drama and press and yeah. everything that goes along with snowy owls. But then it showed up, and it got put in the regular newspaper, so now everyone knows, so I don't know if it helped a lot. So much for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and um, yeah, I'm reminded of this, uh, this article from 2017 um, about snowy owls and how it was assumed that there was a a food chain issue situation that caused them to move south in bigger numbers in certain years than others and that was assumed to be a lack of food and it turns out that it's not it's actually an abundance of food and the birds had a really good year and there's just more of them and they're moving out and spreading out 
it, it's fascinating. And it's, again, just like with migration studies, it just kind of turns what you thought you knew upside down. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was also, while I was, while I was looking at that, reminded of a situation here in the Chicago area in 2011 and uh, 2012, where we had a big influx in 2011 and then a repeat in 2012. Mm-hmm. And looking at the records, west of Chicago, there's a county, Ogle County, where the town of Rochelle is. And in 2011-12, there was one record of snowy owl in that county, according to the Illinois Journal, uh, the Metal Arc. The next year, there were dozens of records in this one county. And it was kind of under the radar at the time, but now it's been well documented that what was happening is that they were, IDNR was trapping snowy owls at O'Hare Airport. And over the course (laughs) of the winter, over the course of that winter, they trapped, I think, 60 owls at the airport. And and 40 of them were relocated. I think that 20 of them were either not in good shape or maybe had been hit by a vehicle or whatever, you know, a certain number of them. But they took uh, 40 or more, 40 or 50 of them and relocated them to Ogle County. (laughs) (laughs) And those birds apparently have been coming back. Really? (laughs) Because Ogle County is now, I mean, you know, local wisdom is Ogle and Lee counties are the two that are next to each other, is one of the best places to look for snowy owl in northern Illinois. Well, that didn't used to be the case. Yeah, until they started repopulating. (laughs) Until they they moved the population from O'Hare Airport. That's funny. Yeah, you know, there's, there's um, every once in a while this time of year, there's um, a story about the guy at, I think he just retired, though, the guy at Boston's airport, Logan, who, well, the, the airport is called Logan, the guy, I don't know if it's called <laughs> Logan, that would yeah. be, uh, it'd be funny if it was, but um, the guy that he used to capture the, the snowy owls at um, Logan and would re- return them up to um, to Plum Island, just north of the city, and put them there, and that's like the place where you'd go see snowy owls if you're in Boston. Although in Boston, there's snowy owls uh, in a lot of different places. Um, yeah, they love airports. There was one at my local airport a few years ago um, that they recovered and took somewhere else. All the hubbub and drama surrounding snowy owls, and and then they end up going places where people are most likely to have interactions with them, and not frequently <laughs> problematic interactions with them. Uh, like they don't like they don't know any better. It's pretty pretty wild the way they do that. Wow, that's interesting. I I didn't know they were so sight fidel that they would come back to the yeah. spot you move them to year after year. And it makes me wonder what makes some birds like come back to that site and yeah. what, what makes some birds something they like. I, I will I will say this. I don't know that that is an established fact by recapturing them out there. Mm-hmm. But all like it's it's so it's anecdotal, but it's certainly compelling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Greg, I worked actually at uh, Natusa Grasslands right near, it's on the border of Lee and Ogle County. And like, that oh, yeah, was, sure. yeah, that was one thing we, I mean, yeah, the, in the winter there, it's like, a, it's a really reliable spot for those, those snowies. It's like well known around there. Yeah, but it, it wasn't before 2011 yeah. or 2012. Yeah, I didn't realize that was like a new thing. I just assumed, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty wild. Have any of you gotten to see a snowy owl this year? I guess, uh, probably not in LA. Um, 
<laughs> no, but I did get a lifer long eared owl. Oh, and that's, that's someone see, I, I've wanted to see for better. many years. Oh no, I don't. I don't know about. I mean, now that I've seen, I, yeah, it was amazing. It was so slim and like, yeah, they're cool. Had looking. this, it was like a great horned owl, but like compressed and had these like, as severe tufts. Um, very very cute. But yeah. now that I've seen it, I would love to see a, like a white owl. You know, yeah. I've never seen a snowy owl. I've I've seen more snowy owls than long eared owls. Um. Not by much, though. <laughs> come to come to Chicago this winter. They're easy to find. Yeah, yeah. I guess like when I land, I was just like start scanning at the airport <laughs> immediately. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Look for, look. There is one at O'Hare. There's one at O'Hare Airport right now that, that <laughs> at least two people have photographed from inside planes while taxiing. Yeah. What is the What is the clue for looking for snowy owls? You look for the discolored lump of snow. And fifty uh, percent of the time, it actually is a discolored lump of snow, but right. uh, the other half, it's actually a snowy yep. owl. <laughs> yeah, plastic bag or owl. Exactly. Yeah, the plastic bag or a white bucket. White the, bucket. The drains, the the drain pipes that they put out in the middle of the fields when they tile them. You know, they put the the, the standpipe drains. Oh yeah, yeah. They put a buck. They put a bucket over that, a white pickle bucket over that in the winter time to keep it from filling with water and mm-hmm. or icing up. And bursting, and those when you're driving along, boy, every single one of those is an owl sitting out. In the <laughs> I was going to say, Greg, have you ever seen a, uh, a snowy owl sitting on top of one of those buckets that's covered in a white plastic grocery bag? I have not. <laughs> <laughs> Yahtzee, that one is. Yeah, totem pole. Owl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have I have seen a snowy owl migrating at night along the lakefront. That was pretty cool. Wow, oh, that is that was in cool. Chicago, Greg. Yeah, nice. yeah, the one that I saw. At the end of um, the end of last year, uh, I was out on the Outer Banks with my family um, just for a week because you can get beach houses really inexpensively in the middle of winter because no one wants to hang out on the beach in the middle of winter for some reason. I don't know. I love it. But um, yeah, I got a call from a local friend and she's like, uh, there's a snowy owl like four miles south of where you're staying. Just wanted to make sure you knew before you left. Mm. <laughs> so I took my whole family down there, uh, my wife, my parents, my kids. Um, my mother-in-law, um, and we all went down and saw the snowy owl. It was quite the quite the family bonding oh. experience. Yeah, that's special to be able Sweet. to share it with them. Yeah, yeah. February is coming up. It is uh, as the Galbatrosses celebrate uh, Gullentine's Day. Um, oh, February fourteenth. In addition to being that other Hallmark holiday, is actually one of the peaks of a uh, goal watching. I would think that you would know, Greg. That's like the coldest time of the year, and there would be a lot of great goals. Have you seen any good goals? On I mean, come Valentine's on, this Day? is the goal land of the golf frolic. That's right. I, mean, <laughs> I knew that. Yeah. We- anyway, so in mind of Golentine's Day, and also sort of making an overture to a recent study that came out. Um, there was another sort of let's put some trackers on the backs of birds and see what they do kind of study, uh, which there's a lot of now. Uh, and, and as I said, I cannot get enough of them. This one was yeah. published in Nature. It was about goal foraging strategies in urban environments, basically where all these goals are going to find food when they're in the uh, northeast uh, in the megalopolis uh, that, you know, the D.C. to uh, Boston uh, urban center. And they, they found they're going all over the place for the most part. I'm not going to try and summarize it. It's sort of exactly what you say. But in mind of goal strategies, goal foraging strategies and Gullentine's Day, what is the strangest thing you've ever seen a goal eat? Paint. Paint. Really? Yes. Wow. Oh, man. That's a weird one. <laughs> Reminds me of that um, 
that article that went around a few years ago about the gull that got in the spices, like the South Asian spices, and was like oh, covered yeah. in turmeric and was like all all orange, entirely oh. orange. It was a gull in uh, in the UK. It was, it, like, why was it eating paint? What was it eating? But it was in a dump. And well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was in a, it was in a dump, and I and I don't remember exactly how it happened. We were watching. Well, we uh, we were turned onto this bird because it was a herring gull with bright yellow legs. And mm-hmm. it turned out the yellow legs were covered. It was covered in paint. And <laughs> <laughs> there was like this puddle of paint. And I just remember this bird like picking stuff. Up. It was just the stuff, whatever it was into, it was just covered in this yellow paint. And it was just gobbling it right down. Like just no problem. Listen, wow. if, if gulls start body painting, I'm giving up on gull ID. That's, that's just, <laughs> oh my God. They're hard enough as it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, Miko, I'm sure you're you're familiar with at least the location of uh, North Point Marina, oh, yeah. where the Gulf Frolic is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that that the beach just north of there is awesome, and just waiting for some kind of a study because the the gulls that that hang out at the dump ten miles west of there, they lounge on that beach and they just cough up whatever, and there's just coughed up gull litter all over this beach. <laughs> You can kind of get an idea of what they're into by the junk they cough up. <laughs> that, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, there's this video of a great black-backed gull um, eating, I think it's a rabbit. I, I can't remember, but it just downs yeah. this thing. Oh, yeah. So if you're, yeah. I mean, I think most people who are spend enough time online have probably seen it, if you're like me. <laughs> but if you haven't, go to YouTube and type in great black-backed gull eats. I th- I'm pretty sure it's a rabbit. Um, it is a rabbit. Okay, yeah. yeah, that that video always never ceases to amaze me. Um, <laughs> you know, I haven't really seen a gull like I, I'm drawing a blank on weird things that they've eaten, but like in terms of foraging strategies and mm-hmm. calling back to airport birding, uh, if you fly out of J- into or out of JFK in Queens, New York, um, you know it's actually a really good airport to bird at because it's really close to Jamaica Bay uh, Wildlife Refuge, and the gulls there. I've seen them basically like drop mollusks and bivalves and stuff like on the tarmac and then go back to pick it up once they're broken up. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a cool one to see. It's just kind of a, that a is unique cool. foraging strategy, especially in like such an yeah. urban environment like New York City. Yeah, it's almost like Anthropocene dependent. Yeah, like yeah. You would, they wouldn't necessarily be able to do it if there wasn't an airport. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I only had a few minutes to to glance over that um, that article that that you sent me in the time we had to to prepare pre coming on here but in looking at it i it it looked like what we see here in chicago in the way that the the three species of gulls that we find here great black-backed herring and ringbill are the most common um the way they kind of separate themselves and it's mm-hmm. like the great black-backed are always on the water they're usually eating dead fish or or yeah mm-hmm. killing other birds on the water yeah yeah herring gulls are really into garbage dumps <laughs> and ring-billed gulls are the parking lot gulls parking lots. Mm-hmm. they're yeah. eating french fries at portillo's <laughs> and and you know and and, and, and ring-billed gulls are also uh they fish more i believe than other gulls that i you know i notice when there's when there's fish moving along lake michigan or or uh spillways are opened up and shad are being dumped and stunned the ring-billed mm-hmm. gulls are just pour in there 
Yeah, I, I appreciate the nod to Valentine's Day, which is uh, <laughs> a more fun alternative to the Hallmark holiday. Um, but yeah, I and same with Miko. I, I think the funnest things I've seen them do is yeah, drop drop shells and then repeatedly try to catch them very loudly in their goal way. <laughs> um, I I think my most memorable, this is a little bit sad too, story of a goal is at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. There was a gull who was like snacking on french fries and whatnot. And then it was like hopping away weirdly. And I saw that it was just tangled in a mess of fishing wire around its legs. And yeah. for some reason, I, I just, I I don't know what I was thinking. I thought I could catch it and take off the wire. I, I don't know why, but I was like, I'm going to help this gull. Like it's, it, it's so tangled up, this poor thing. It'll never free itself. Um, so I like go up to it and I'm like trying to sneak up on this gull. <laughs> I, I think it was a Western gull, but yeah. obviously it flew away. But um, just sad that. You know, in those situations, there's like not much you can do, and sometimes yeah, the bird makes it. Some, yeah, sometimes, yeah. If they can't fly, I don't know, they don't have much of a chance. But, um, yeah, just another plug to picking up litter, and you know, if if I go out now and I see something, I'll just pick it up and throw it away when I when I can, and I think it it could it could save an animal's life in the future, especially fishing line. Yep. Like yeah, I'm sort of so avid about whenever I see fishing line in some places, making sure that I pick that up, even if I might leave some other stuff, because otherwise you just get too burdened down with garbage. But fishing line, I'll almost mm. always pick up because that stuff is insidious. Totally. Um, uh, you know, one, one other um, just quick kind of anecdotal but interesting bird movement, tracking birds, gulls. Um, a few years ago, there was a uh, slatyback gull that was found at a garbage dump 55 miles south of Chicago. Mm -hmm. and of course, everybody, including myself, rushed down there to see the bird. And um, one day it disappeared. I mean, they just couldn't find it. Well, that morning, Josh Engel found it at Montrose Harbor, 55 miles to the north. Hmm. And people got to see it. The next day, everybody rushed to Montrose to try to find it. And it was back at the dump, 55 miles to the <laughs> wow. south the next morning. <laughs> Commute. Fast. And it was just like commute. in the afternoon, just flying back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Huh. That's wild. Um, yeah. I, I, like, like you, I've seen uh, great blackback gulls eat a lot of any, basically anything they can fit in their mouth. Um, they will wolf down. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the cool behavior that gulls do sometimes when they're on the beach and there's like the waves coming in and, and they'll sit in the sand right where the waves and they do that little paddle footing thing where they pound their feet back and mm -hmm. forth and back and forth to try and move the sand around when it's coming in to try and get the little mollusks and little worms and stuff that are in there. Um, mm. I always like seeing that. It's really cool, especially if you get like a line of gulls all facing the shore and they're all doing that at the same time when the waves come in uh, underneath them. Um, but I did have some friends that saw a, um, that went out on a winter pelagic and um, out of Hatteras one time. And they were, you know, one of the big, big birds that people like to see out on those is dove key, especially in a good dove key year. And um, they saw a dove key and then a great black bat gull came down and, <gasps> um, and ate one gull. an unfortunate way to see a life. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that is not the first dove key, that great black bat gull. And, you know, dove key is such a tiny little thing, such a small little bird, a great black. You really don't appreciate how tiny they are until it is like in the in the maw of a, of a great black bat gull, which is a monster bird. It's like a skittle. Oh. Yeah, it's like a skittle. <laughs> totally. Yeah. 
That's yeah. amazing. Little Ock, little Skittle. Yeah, <laughs> Skittle, Skittle Ock. There it is. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm encouraging this. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, thank you, all three of you. Uh, Miko, Joanna, Greg, thanks for jumping in at uh, short notice. I want to thank pleasure. all of you for um, for joining us. And, um, man, I hope you have a great 2022. And uh, happy Gullentine's Day to, to all of you, if I don't see you before then. <laughs> And uh, I'll see you all down the road. Sounds good. Thanks, Thanks, Nate. Good talking to you all. Yeah, good to see you all. Bye, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us grow by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like magazines, discounts, partners, opportunities to travel with us. Get information at aba.org slash join. I do have some special shout outs to make this week to Boris Belchev of Rusnet, Lithuania, Nicole Salzman of Hendersonville, North Carolina, Jean Tortelli of Reno, Nevada, and John and Jane Flagg of Shirley, Massachusetts. All of them recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much for that. Welcome to the ABA. Technical production is by John Lowry, who is certain that predatory seabirds in the North Pacific refer to that East Asian tree-nesting alcid as Kit Kat's merlet. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who, much like A. Palmer and Jaeger, are fans of the Aleutian nesting snickerdocklet. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media. Most everywhere is American Birding Association, but on Twitter as at ABA, where I, a South Polar Skua, terrorizing nesting colonies of Pidgeot Tamalimat, thick-billed Meriki Way and candy-corned puffin, I might be inclined to consider it some sort of holiday. Alice and Ween, if you like. I understand if you don't. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ava.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. Till next week.